my presumption is, is that most of you are somewhat like me in the sense that you like instructions that are easy to understand. In fact, I've looked at instructions about two or three things recently. And when you open up the instructions, usually on the left-hand side is the text that tells you what you're supposed to do. On the right-hand side, there's a little photograph or a little drawing, a little illustration showing how you do it. What I generally do is just look at the photo and the illustration, and I rarely read the text, usually because the guy who wrote it wrote it in Japanese, and then they translated it into English, and it's unintelligible. Not really. The truth is, is that you and I find ourselves sometimes needing to see something in some way that you and I can appreciate it and understand it. And for the next few Sunday evenings, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at some of the parables where there is a very profound, important lesson that you and I need to hear. When we read about the rich fool, I'm afraid many of us think, this passage doesn't apply to me. And yet, you and I need to listen to the details of it to realize it does apply to us. And there are principles and there are lessons that you and I need to learn here. The truth is, is that parables were used at different times for different purposes, some public, some private. I think about, for instance, when Nathan approached David and he talked about the man who had been wealthy and took this neighbor's little ewe lamb who treated it like a family member. And when he comes to the point, he looks at David and he says, you are the man. Sometimes these illustrations are powerful because they help us see this applies to us. This parable is in a group of parables known as the stewardship parables. And when you think about stewardship, we ultimately ought to realize everything that we have really isn't ours. It belongs to God and He's just allowed us the privilege of controlling them for some few years. In Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know the birds of the mountain and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. God owns it all. And so you and I, as we approach this, we realize that this is a description of some earthly events that provide for us a spiritual application. Or as I'm sure many of you have heard the definition of a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So here's what we want to do as we look at the rich fool. We want to look at the context in which it appears because that helps us see, does this have any application to me? Then we want to look at the content of it. What Luke actually records about our Lord's conversation and the giving of the parable, and then some principles that follow from it. Let's go back to verse 13 for just a minute. I want to look at verses 13 through 15 as a group here. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, 
Man, who made me an judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You have to realize that Jesus has been teaching here. And as the Lord is teaching, he's interrupted. I want you to imagine tonight, I, I know... Brother Zali, our white brethren are sort of quiet. We don't say much. But I want you to imagine someone interrupting the lesson and saying, stop just a minute. I want, I want to bring up something. That's what took place here. People often want what's on their mind to take precedence. Whatever is in your mind, that's what I want the preacher to talk about. That's what I want the teacher to teach about. If I've got a problem over here with my neighbor and my neighbor's mistreating me, that's what I want to talk about. People often urge personal application of what the teacher is teaching. The teacher gets on a subject, and especially in class, if someone has something that is burning in their minds, they'll say, well, teacher, that applies to this, and I'm going through that situation right now myself. Notice how it says, one from the crowd. Whenever I read about a crowd, I always want to know who's in the crowd. Why are they there? Do they have any purpose or any goal or ulterior motives? Well, I'd suggest to you in this instance, you certainly do. Let's Back up, if you will, to chapter 11. There's a, there's a context to this. So if you go back with me to chapter 11, and let's look at verse 39. Chapter 11, verse 39. Then the Lord said to him, the, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. You see that first word he used to describe them? He said, you're full of greed. You know what that is, don't you? This is this desire to have more. In fact, there's another word for it, covetousness. In Luke 16, verses 13 and 14, no man can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and be, love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon's money. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, also heard these things and they derided him. You see, there's people here that the Lord is saying, they're greedy. They love money. And when the Lord starts talking about greed and covetousness, it's like, hmm, that's not important. You see, if a person in our world today, in 2017, in the United States, commits a sexual sin, there are people in the church who say, Ooh, that's bad. But you let a man be covetous, you let a man live for the almighty dollar, and we say, boy, he's industrious. But it wasn't just them. Luke 11, verse 45, you learn there's more than just the Pharisees because it says, Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by these things, saying these things, you reproach us also. You know what? Some of you might be thinking, he's trying to talk about me tonight. 
Because when you deal with things like loving money, it doesn't matter whether you're a Pharisee or a lawyer or a MacMinvillian. I guess that's what we are. You see, a person can love money and love things, and it can show in your life. When Jesus brought this up, they didn't like it. In fact, they challenged him. Look with me at the last part of chapter 11, verses 53 and 54. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. I want you to understand the crowd that's around Jesus, this one man who speaks up out of the crowd, he's heard what Jesus said about covetousness and immediately pops in his mind, you know what? My brother must be a covetous man because he won't divide the inheritance with me and I'm going to stop Jesus and I'm going to say, Jesus, if you believe that that's true, you need to tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus responded by exposing their hypocrisy. Oh, yeah. Chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, while an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to the disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Oh, you see, there's a big crowd gathering around. In fact, the crowd's so large, people are beginning to step on one another. And he says, you see these Pharisees over here? They're hypocrites. They want you to believe they're righteous. They want you to be, believe that they're devoted to the Lord. But he said they're just greedy. The man in the crowd was also a hypocrite. He's the one speaking up saying, Lord, bid my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But do you know what's motivating him? You know why he's speaking up? Greed. That's what's motivating him. In Romans 2 verse 1, Therefore you are an excusable old man, whoever you are who judge another. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you judge, practice the same things. You point your finger to him and say, My brother is greedy. Make him divide it with me. Well, guess what? You're greedy too. It's almost like the child who tells on his brother or sister, Bow your head and close your eyes. And you say, Mama, Joey had his eyes open. How do you know? How do you know? Bid my brother to divide the inheritance. He's greedy. So are you too. You know, in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, do you remember when this ointment was used to anoint the body of Jesus how Judas reacted why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor this he said not that he cared for the poor but because he was a thief and he had the money box used to take what was put in it sometimes people in what they tell you are revealing their own motivations Jesus refused 
his request. He refused arbitrate personal matters. Listen carefully now. There's some things that are none of our business. If I were to have to say there's one thing that I have been asked to do over the years about which I have consistently refused and been asked many, many times, Tony, my family is having trouble with an inheritance. Will you help us? My answer is absolutely not. In fact, I always go to Proverbs 26, verse 17. He who passes by and meddles with a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. You meddle with something that's none of your business and you will get bit. I can assure you of that. You take one side and the other side's going to hate you. Then you realize you've taken one side and you shouldn't have, and then the other side's going to hate you. you. It's a no-win situation. 1 Peter 4, verse 15 says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. You don't meddle with things that's none of your business. And Jesus said, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? That's not my role. That's not my position. There's a number of reasons why the brother could have chosen not to have divided the inheritance. It's possible that the father's not even dead. Someone says, well, yeah, that's the only time you invite the inheritance after the the one who made the will has died. But do you remember Luke 15, verses 11 and 12? The prodigal son who goes to his father and says, give me the portion of the inheritance that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood. Perhaps the father is sick and old and not able to make the decision and the older brother is saying, we've got to wait until somebody's gone first. There could be some legitimate reasons in all this. We're just not told. Jesus gave the man what he needed rather than what he wanted. He gave him a warning about greed. Take heed and beware. means watch carefully and be alert because this is something that can happen to everyone. Oh, you mean that can happen to those of us who don't have Great material possessions. Yes, absolutely. We're going to look at more about that later. He says, beware of covetousness. What's that? Greed. The inordinate desire to have that which you are not due. How is life measured? It's not solely by material things. One thing that we in our country have such a real problem with is we will ask the question, what's a man worth? Oh, he's worth $5 million. He's worth $25 million. Oh, yeah, it's such a great... You mean that's what he's worth? Do you remember Matthew 4, verse 4? He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Or Matthew 6, verse 25 he says, don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, your body, or what you'll put on. Listen carefully. Is not life more than food? 
and the body more than clothing. Is not your worth more than what you have in the bank? Proverbs 22, verse 1, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. You see, what you have may not be in terms of money. And so man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So the Lord will use an illustration. Let's pick up now with verses 16 through 21. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be that you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I remember preaching on this when I was at another congregation before I moved here. And I mentioned a rich farmer. And after services, I was told that's a non-existent person. That there's no such thing as a rich farmer. And I said, well, it just depends on how you measure riches. Sometimes you look at someone and you say, how much money do you have in your bank account? But I might look and say, how much is your combine worth? How much is your land worth? How much is it? Oh, I guess then maybe there are rich farmers. He had a prosperous year with a bountiful harvest, so much that his current barns could not hold the harvest. Now that's an amazing thought to, to realize that you plant something and you have a bumper crop of it. So his solution was to replace the smaller barns with larger ones. And I know what's going through everybody's mind right now. You're thinking about a red barn with wood with ten roofs on it, and you're thinking, man, he's going to tear that barn down and he's going to just make one just a little bit bigger? Why not add on to it? That's what a barn looks like in Israel. You say, well, that's a hole in the ground. It absolutely is. In fact, if you look at it, it's got a stairwell that goes all the way around. Those are grain silos. That's the same word for the word barn that's here. So don't think in your mind the the wood red barn with a tin roof. Think of a grain silo. And if you're going to build bigger ones, you know what you're going to do? You're going to dig out a little bit larger, a little bit larger, because the ones I have now can't hold it all. Oh, that starts making a little more sense now. Satisfaction. Much goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. You've got a comfortable living. Ah. You know, I think there's people who look and say, I've got my 401Ks paid up. I've got retirement coming in from this. I've got very well, I've done well with my investments. And so 
I think I'm going to be able to live a very comfortable life. Oh, it could be for us as well. But God calls a man a fool. You know, there's some things that when I was a boy we were not allowed to say. This is one of those four-letter words. We were not permitted to call one of our classmates, one of our friends, or one of our family a fool. It describes a person who will not adequately assess a situation that he is in. He's not thought about where this will ultimately lead. He's not considered all the evidence. You remember Psalm 14 verse 1. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Why is he a fool for saying that? Well, number one, he's not listened carefully to the evidence of God. He's not considered the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the things that are a part of them. He's not considered the fact that one day God will judge him for his actions. But I want you to take notice of a few things here. Because if you listen carefully to this parable, he was not a fool because he was wealthy. The rich fool was not a fool because he was wealthy. So were a number of other good men in the Bible. Abram, Genesis 13 or Genesis 12, he was very rich in cattle, gold, and silver. Solomon, there was no one like him. I mean, he had talents and talents and talents of gold. In fact, the whole place was adorned with gold. Silver was like nothing because there was so much gold. Job was one of the greatest men of the East. It wasn't because they were wealthy. There's no indication here that this man's wealth was ill-gotten. You know, that like he stole it from somebody. There's nothing says that he stole it. In fact, the text tells us that the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Do you know what you have to do in order for ground to bring forth plentifully? You had to have planted. You don't plant, you're not going to get anything. So he must have had planting. He must have had harvesting. This man worked for what he had. He's not a fool because he worked hard, he planted, and he harvested. He's also not a fool because he was thrifty in wanting to provide a place to store his grain. You know, he says, what I need to do is to tear down these barns and they'll need to build greater barns so that I can store my goods. Someone says, well, it's wrong to store something up. No, it's not either. You remember Genesis 41 when Joseph was before Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a dream about the the fat cows and then came along seven lean cows and ate up the fat cows. And Joseph explained the dream to Pharaoh that there's going to be seven prosperous years followed by seven lean years. Genesis 41, 47. Now the seven plentiful years the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up food in the cities. 
He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as a sand of the seashore until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. All there. But you know what? The Egyptians had food during the seven lean years. There's nothing wrong with storing up to prepare for the future. He's not a fool because he made provision for the future. Proverbs 30, verse 25, the ant are people not strong, yet they prepare their food in summer. Proverbs 10, 5, he who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. We say, well, what was his problem then? What did he do wrong? He was a fool because he did not consider or include spiritual things in his plans. You see, nowhere in all of this do we read anything about his consideration of God or his fellow man. Listen to James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even the vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. You see, the problem was, this man nowhere in any of his discussions says, if God wills, this that I put up will be able to take care of me and my family and others. Oh, he didn't say that. Or you go to Revelation 3, verse 17. The church at Laodicea, because you say, I have become, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You see, that's a great temptation for wealthy people to say, I've got so much, I don't need anything. And they don't recognize their spiritual need. The Laodiceans did not. He said, you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Likewise, he was fooled because he didn't give God the credit. Look what I have done. You know, one of the things that's so interesting, if you read and study this parable, all of the personal pronouns, I, me, my, Look what I've done. James 1 and verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And for just a few minutes, let's take it out of the theoretical and put it into our own understanding. Because the primary principle here is that of greed or covetousness and you can see it in every facet of society. You can see corporate greed where companies put the good of profits above people. Oh yeah, there are companies that will dump toxic waste in rivers and in lakes and in streams so they can make a larger profit. You can see beyond that consumer greed. Some people want to sue McDonald's because they stopped and said, I want a hot cup of coffee. And they give them a hot cup of coffee and they spill it on them. They say, it's hot. Well, sure, that's what you ordered. And now on the side of the cup, it has to say, contents are hot. 
so that you can't sue them for making a hot cup of coffee. Everybody seems to want to make money that they didn't earn or deserve. There's corrupt politicians. You can see it in the Bible. You remember Acts 24, verse 26? Meanwhile, talking about Felix, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Paul, come here. What you going to give me today? You can say, oh, politicians aren't greedy. Really? Most of them started out with very modest means. They retire millionaires. They don't get paid that by the government. Where does the money come from? And believe it or not, there's corrupt religious people as well. We read about one of them in Acts chapter 8. You remember Simon, verses 18 through 20? He saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that upon whomever anyone I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He said, Hey, let me buy into that. I want to be able to do that so that I can make some money off of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. For we're not as many peddling the word of God. Are there people out here trying to make money off of religion? Joel Olstein come to mind? Some of these people who live in multi-million dollar houses, drive in multi-million dollar cars and airplanes while taking money from little widows. Seems like I read about the Pharisees doing things like that. Some people trust in what their money can do. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Some people trust too much in it. He said, let them do good. Be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Why? Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. He's talking about a man who's rich in spiritual things. Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth. He tells us where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. If it's all God's, how much am I going to leave when I die? Everything that you have. Everything from the clothes that you wear to the money in your pocket to the car you drive to the house you live in, you're going to leave everything. 1 Timothy 6, 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And then he talks about those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare. You know who those who desire to be rich are? Many times that's us. Psalm 49, 17. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. When Bill Gates dies, 
or some of these other men now who's risen to even above him as far as wealth, when they're laid in a casket and placed into the ground, they leave everything they have. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19 talks about when I leave it, who knows whether I'm going to leave it to a wise man or to a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I have taught and which have shown myself wise under the sun. You know, when you die and you leave it, you can work real hard for it. You can pinch every penny until Abraham Lincoln screamed on it. But you know what? You don't know whether the person who's going to have what you have is going to take care of it or squander it. The key is learning to be content with what God provides. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What you really get down to, if you study Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34, is the fact you either trust God or you don't. If you trust God, come what may, we will make it. You have to remember, you're only a steward over what God has placed within your care. And you have to also remember there's something more valuable than possessions. I want to end with Matthew 16, verse 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Please take your song books now. Let's, let's get ready to sing this song. And I want to ask you, what is the condition of your soul right now? It's either right with God and you have the promise and the hope of eternal life or you're not right with God, in which case you're lost. And if you think that things are not right between you and God, either you're not a Christian or you're not a faithful Christian, you need to seriously think about making that step this evening, either to become a Christian through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, or being restored, would you come as we stand and sing?